Welcome to Experiencing Consciousness. My name is Jan Liva. And I'm Dr. Catherine Rossi. We're happy you're here. I think we've done it for the third time in a row. Excellent. Hopefully, hopefully we are on live online right now. And I'll just gonna say to all the people that are or will be watching us um, that they can leave their comments below in the post and we're gonna see them. And if you have any questions, don't hesitate to ask them. Is it, isn't that right? Absolutely. In fact, this whole session is to answer people's questions. They had questions about conscious and unconscious processing. Exactly. We, we, we had a few questions about conscious and unconscious processing, about how, what, about what is the unconscious and conscious mind, how and when it was discovered and how it emerged. And generally, a lot of questions about the nature of unconscious. So we decided to put all of that together into this session and, you know, have a good long conversation about conscious and unconscious structures. Isn't that right? Absolutely. And so we hope that each person that is taking this in is going to discover something new in themselves and to be able to expand your own consciousness and having a deeper understanding and appreciation for this. Exactly. So how to start that discussion? What is conscious and unconscious mind? Where would you like to start? Well, I, one of the questions was, where did it start? And, uh, you know, like, what, what is the origin of it? And I've been thinking about this. So when you go to the person that made the, the I'm going to go with the unconscious before conscious, um, mm -hmm. that the person who brought the term uh, unconscious to be popular in really our realm was Freud, but he didn't make it up. He, it was yeah. just something that he noticed on a psychological level. But when you go back in time, I mean, they talk about Kant and they talk about Descartes and things like this. However, if you really want to understand where did this consciousness mm -hmm. and, and unconscious concept come from, you've got to go to the ancient world because this has been around since the beginning of time. And um, so I um, decided to, you know, make a little foray into mm -hmm. what do the Buddhists say? You know, what do the Hindus say? And probably the, uh, the most expanded one comes from uh, Buddhism and that the ultimate consciousness, the fundamental consciousness is underneath the pure consciousness. Mm -hmm. the Buddha consciousness is called Alaya. And um, and then there's the how do you get to that? 
and so it begins with the senses. That's really uh, the the uh, kind of like the first five levels are the five senses. And so at so the beginning, it's, sensory experience. It's, it's sensory experience. Now, you know, for for you, when you tune into yourself, isn't that where you go first? How do I sense mm -hmm. it? How do I, you know, particularly when we're talking about the unconscious. And so we as humans, and this is also true when you think about how we operate on um, on a gene expression level, that you have a sensation that then stimulates cascades of genes to turn on and off that turn on neurotransmitters and proteins and things like that, that well, that create the proteins that then change the structure of the cell and the receptors. And so it begins with the perception. And this is also really, when you start to get into the depth work in psychotherapy, it's with perception. It's not with memories and words it goes to a different level. And so the perceptions lead to the conscious mind, according to um, this Buddhist thinking, that I really enjoy that. And then when you have a conscious mind, what's there by contrast? And they call it the unconscious mind. So when you also think about that there's two sides to your brain, there's two sides to any arguments, that there's the yin and yang, that there is this balance where there would be this conscious awareness and then another kind of awareness that's going on. And um, this is why people meditate is they want to get into that unconscious kind of place. And that then actually dovetails into, um, you know, the uh, what makes you you. So it's this instinct for survival, um, you know, ego. It's like suffering, this sort of thing. And then the eighth level is um, what's your karma? What did you come with? And what is the collective karma of what's out in the ethers around you? Again, according to Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And that when all of that comes together, that what fundamentally underlies it is a consciousness affirming and, uh, and, and that's the Buddha nature. So, so I really like that there is this, this um, kind of like pathway of mm -hmm. you, you sense it goes into your mind where you're into a reality and then you explore. And I think that when you're exploring, you go into a different state of consciousness that mm -hmm. can be called many things. And of course, that which has not been revealed to your conscious mind would need to be, if it's there, it would need to be in the unconscious. So uh, referring to the, uh, to the Buddhist philosophy, uh, if we have the conscious and unconscious mind in that philosophy, then I, I need to ask that question. Then all the practices of, you know, meditation and everything else are focused mainly on conscious mind, on unconscious mind, on transmitting some messages between in between those two, or is it like, you know, how, how does it operate? It depends. 
You know, mm -hmm. it's like anything else that the thing that I've been been spending time appreciating and thinking about are these opposites. And um, that, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, um, on your right, on your left, there's all of these things that are the opposites. And then there is a coming together in the middle. Like, you know, you, and so it's not one or the other, it's the, the creating something new. And so if, um, uh, I think often it's, it's in this search for balance, whether you want to go into the conscious or the unconscious. And so it's uh, that, that you get to that pathway and, you know, are you going to go right? Are you going to go left sort of thing? Are you going to, you know, go deeper into the unconscious? Are you going to go deeper into the conscious? Now, um, invitations can come either way. You know, invitations of, um, uh, you know, like one of the things that, that uh, Ernie would say a lot is keep private whatever you need to keep private. Yeah, you don't have to tell me. You don't have to tell yourself. They keep keep private whatever you need to keep private. But if there's something you want to bring forward, you can also do that. So there's no pressure when you're at those that at that juncture. What do you make of that? Well, I would say it depends. <laughs> I'm no, you know, I'm starting to think about all the uh, some models of conscious unconscious uh, and trying to uh, put uh, what you're saying into frames and compare them with, you know, like Freudian Jungian with Ericksonian kind of way of looking at it, strategic way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. But before that, I I would like to address uh, to to historical things that I also. Uh, 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 you know, found out once. I, I've read once that the, I don't know if you know that, but it's actually, in, I think that it is interesting that the first model uh, that actually was dividing conscious and unconscious mind in, in a way similar to Freud mm -hmm. was described in something called the uh, Upanishads. Uh, Upanishads. Uh -huh. Yeah, Upanishads. That's the problem. Yeah. That's, that's the Sanskrit word. pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, that's why I don't know how to pronounce that. No worries, no worries. Okay, so someone so, will always correct us. It's not an yeah. issue. Mm -hmm. So I, so I, so I've read that actually this was the first uh, known historically description of this division between. Uh, conscious and unconscious mind, which is actually very interesting because many people would say that Freud actually invented that. And, and uh, you know, th th this was available uh, earlier, way more, way, way earlier. earlier. And so the Upanishads are um, a part of the Hindu tradition. Mm -hmm. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, which, uh, it, you know, uh, which came before Buddha, uh, which influenced Buddha, which influenced actually every um, religion on the planet has been influenced by it. And what's interesting about all of those books is they give you things to think about that um, um, this is something I really appreciate 
about um, the, the teachings, the Hindu teachings, is they give you things to think about. They will not tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. You have to work that out for yourself. And so, um, and, and uh, these concepts that they, you know, spoke about, you know, an oral tradition at first, and then there was writing, is um, giving you things to think about uh, after careful observation. So all of these ideas came from observation. From experiencing, probably also. Mm-hmm. Experiencing is exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so when you're experiencing, you're also observing yourself. But good. Yeah, no, Freud popularized the term is is what happened with, with and I'm grateful because we're talking about it today. Yeah, but on the other hand, you know, he also like, you know, was inspired mainly by Charcot, right? From whom he was actually learning uh, hypnosis, very traditional, classical way of doing hypnosis, that that authoritarian approach where you kind of like, you know, put spells on people in form of very direct hypnotic suggestions. And from, I think he took that from over there, or at least was inspired to a degree by 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 Charcot and his demonstrations. So that actually, Absolutely. and then and then Jung um, was a student of Freud, and Jung went on to do deep studies of Eastern philosophies, yeah. and he came up with what he called the collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. And um, so he, he, took, he took the idea a little bit farther, which is that which is even outside of your body, that, yeah. that there's, there's something that now we know about, you know, mirror neurons. And, you know, so we don't have to speak of it in terms of energies and whatnot. But there's, you know, something that happens where is, there is this inside-outside connection. I'll give you a challenge when it comes to Carl Gustav Jung. Uh, because, you know, I, I went through many of his books and I really liked the way he was re- reading, uh, he was writing all those things. But mm. I really liked him because he, to me, he is a very dark, murky kind of like, you know, <laughs> and I like and I like horror tales. I like Edgar Allan Poe, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, uh, things like that, you know, uh, Ligotti and stuff. So very dark kind of like poetry and so Jung was I would have associate Jung with that kind of um, you know uh, literature and I know I mean you know I know what he was writing about because I got through all those things however in my mind it was always like you know I would say to people yeah I really like Carl Gustav Jung because this is like kind of dark fantasy kind of land you know so I was never actually thinking about those theories uh, in a such a way as if they actually relate to a real life and real way how to how do people actually operate in the world especially his later writings about alchemy and stuff like that mm-hmm. so my challenge to you maybe that's not a challenge but can you actually relate all those incredible i mean you know very imaginative concepts to a way people actually function and you know relate to the world I can. <laughs> okay. So, 
so uh, I was just looking up at my shelf, you know, the on um, um, uh, many, many, many years after Young's death, um, that his uh, his drawings, his artwork in the Red Book yeah. were published, and a lot of mandalas. Some things are really like dark and detailed, and it was how he worked through his own, um, you know, psychological levels to come to peace. And um, and he did that through, you know, what I mean, he had lots of names for things. So like the archetypes and the mm -hmm. archetypes really are the fantasies there, um, you know, where mythology fits in, where um, when you're trying to explain something or to experience something that you you would do that potentially indirectly to use more of an Ericksonian discovery. And uh, so you would um, uh, put yourself within that myth, to put yourself within that story. And um, this is what people do all day long. They're making up fantasies inside their mind about how life is and how they're going to um, conduct themselves. You know, like if this situation, I'll do this, this situation, I'll do mm -hmm. that. It's why we love to go to the movies. It's why when there's um, a, a really meaningful piece of music, you know, whether that's the hardest driving rock song you ever heard in your life or whether it's a lullaby, that it's depending on how that touches you, particularly in a sensory way, that that then gives rise to, um, to, to growing. So it's... it's it's that for me, Jung did many things, but it was that he he expanded how you apply story to psychological growth. Other people might not say that, but um, but uh, it, but you're asking me of uh -huh. how how he made those applications, yeah. and I was thinking of. Um, uh, when we were going to do this, about one of my favorite Hindu creation stories. Uh -huh. And um, it completely explains the conscious and the unconscious within this story. Would you like to hear it? Of course. So um, in the beginning, uh, in, and, and in Hinduism, there's many, many, many creation stories. This is just one of them. And mm -hmm. I tell it in my way because it's the only way that I know how. And so in the beginning, there was it was completely dark. It was completely silent. Mm -hmm. And then a sound came. And the first sound that came was actually, Om. And then there was a heartbeat, lub-dub, lub-dub, lub-dub. And then the darkness started to lift and that heartbeat belonged to Shiva, who is really represents letting go of what you don't need anymore and welcoming the new. Essentially, that's what Shiva 
you know, represents. Mm -hmm. And so with this heartbeat, then came this body and then came this movement and he was dancing and moving. And then the universe started to, to form where there were mountains and streams and flowers and the sun and more and more and more. And then he looked and he saw, oh, what's that over there? Well, that's his female consort, that's Shakti. And he invited mm -hmm. Shakti to dance. And she danced in her own sensual way while he was strong dancing. And they danced together and they created this world that was so perfect, so wonderful, so everything you could ever hope to want to have. But then they kept dancing. And then the entire world, it disintegrated. Until there was just this heartbeat. Loved up, loved up. And then the sound of OM. And then complete darkness. And the next day they got up and they did it all over again. That's my favorite creation story is we create ourselves every day. And when you think about what they created, how did they remember that? Was it consciously or unconsciously? That's something for you to decide. Do you like how, how volitional that was? How emotional and how yeah. unconscious on the and does does it mean that they actually create or recreate the world each mm -hmm. time they decide to dance? Yes. And um, they were just dancing and intertwining and being, you know, uh, I mean, with the imagination bringing everything forward. And um, I th think to me, this freedom to create fresh and anew every day is, um, is really important. And then you make a union with what you need to make a union with on the inside of yourself. But then where does the rest of the stuff go that's in the back of your mind or things that you can't remember or, you know, um, or the like that I think it goes into a different kind of mind within you, which is the unconscious mind that sometimes we can wake it up. wake it up yeah you know well when you when you um are troubled you know someone comes into therapy and they're they're really troubled they're really confused um they're in a relationship that is not what they thought it was it's not going well they don't know why they're even even in this relationship. They're really, really confused and they don't know what got them there. They don't know how to get out of it. You know, we've all worked with people that are like this. And, on, uh, and then we, in so many words or in so much experience, we 
help them to access something within their inner self. You know, uh, on a technical term, it's like inner resources is what we say. Mm -hmm. But those inner resources, they they may be declarative and linear, or they may be on the sensory perception level, or they may be on the unconscious level. But we're inviting something to come so that there can be a, a, a different response, a different outcome, a different understanding. So how to actually access the unconscious mind that is unconscious? And so, you know, Freud said that you can do it only by free associations, right? But now do we have other means? Well, I think uh, uh, that brings me back to a fun story is that um, when, uh, you know, when Ernie, my husband, was... Um, uh, he, he went to college on scholarships for pharmacy and mm -hmm. he thought he was going to be like this lab scientist. That's what he was going to do. But he needed mm -hmm. more stimulation than being by himself in a lab. And so he began to be, become interested in psychology from his, you know, he'd read all the classics and whatnot. So he went to Freudian analysis for, I think, two years. I think he was in analysis. And when I first met him, he actually had an analyst couch at the house. And now I'm sorry I didn't say, oh, let's keep this thing because, you know, what a hoot to have an actual analyst couch. <laughs> but, um, uh, but you know, and he, uh, he talked about the experience of that he'd go in and and his analyst would um, basically not say anything and Ernie would free associate the whole time. And, um, you know, and, and it went like this. And, um, and uh, not that he didn't learn things because, you know, everything worked for Ernie, just like every therapy works for me. I'm really easy. But mm -hmm. he, what he found is that, um, this free association brought things up, but there wasn't the integration and he mm -hmm. really needed the integration. So then he went for Jungian therapy and, uh, you know, there was a lot of stories and a lot of integration that happened there. What do you mean by integration? What, 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 what is the actual process? What does it mean to integrate in this context? You know, I love the questions that you ask. And of course, I'm thinking, oh, I want to turn this question back on you. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, what what it means to me to, to integrate is that uh -huh. you've really made sense of something and that your sensory system is calm. Like you're not searching with your eyes or your ears uh -huh. or your touch or you know your taste that all of that is calm because there's a level of understanding now that level of understanding doesn't have to be with words sometimes there's just a knowing mm -hmm. and so to me an integration is is when you feel peace or a semblance of peace you feel a sense of completion so it's individual sense of completion it sounds like uh going through all the creative process like 
all four stages. So you're mm -hmm. after the insight, which uh, generates some new content and ways of mm -hmm. dealing with things or behavior or whatever. And then you also have some, some means of verifying that, like mm -hmm. test it outside if it works. Yeah. Do, do, I, do I understand that correctly? Absolutely. And so that's how you would see integration? Uh, so it's like the the end of some process of working on a particular subject, mm -hmm. I would say. Okay. And yeah, and probably classical psychoanalysis doesn't have that because it's like constantly open, right? To well, you know, and in, 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 uh, I've never... I've never been in, in analysis, um, so I don't have the experience. Mm -hmm. But I, uh, the thing that I love about the whole idea of analysis mm -hmm. is that the uh, the patient is not interrupted. The patient is not told what to do, say, think, or feel. You know, they're they're literally having this free association in the support of another uh, uh, knowledgeable person there mm -hmm. who is, you know, uh, taking notes is in, and is, is appreciating the integration that is going on. So for, um, for, for those people that really want to be supported, but they, they very much want to um, uh, do it on their own. You know, they, they, they don't want to be interfered with. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be, um, you know, have an interpretation, for instance. I think that this is the brilliance of um, Freudian analysis. Now, some analysts, you know, will make interpretations and things like that. You know, I'm not up with all the modern day ways that, that those go about. But I always want to be 100% supportive of every theory. It just depends on the person who's experiencing it of what's right for them. Yeah, and on the need also, what does someone particularly need in therapy to actually go for further with the change? Yes, and I know, as um, Ernie said, that the cost of his psychoanalysis at the time, now this would have been in, um, uh, in the 1950s, I think. Yeah, 1950s, between 1950 and, you know, maybe 1960. Um, and the cost was $25 for a session, which was a lot of money at the time. And he went twice a week. It was $50 a week. Mm. So um, I really admire that he did that. And then what happened for Ernie is that he he wanted to know more about psychology. So he had to study not letting anybody in the pharmacology schools know that he was doing this. He had to do it really secretly. And um, because uh, at the time, it's like, no, 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 no. You're only doing one thing. You're doing pharmacy. You're not doing any kind of double duty. And mm. uh, and so Ernie decided for his advanced degrees to um, uh, pursue psychology. Mm -hmm. And um, but I think that it's it's his story of how he 
came to to be the theorist and the therapist that he was so brilliant at, it was that there was a lot of space and time for him to integrate these things and to come to his own conclusions, which he did most frequently through writing that he wrote because he wanted to understand and that's and and he every book that he ever wrote even even the 16 volumes with Erickson it was because he wanted to understand and this was the way that he could understand these concepts so he did so much integration for all of us including Erickson he uh -huh. helped Erickson to understand, many people did, Ernie was not the only one, but for him to understand, well, this is how I see it. And just as you do with me, this is how I see it from this theory's perspective and that theory's perspective. He um, as, as far as I remember, he, he almost got an ulcer while, uh, while reading uh, some of the Jay Haley's writings and getting familiar with Erickson's work at first. Wasn't that true? And then Yes, I mean, it's really fantastic. I still have the book over here, you know, that he was reading the Jay Haley book, that someone came into his office one day. Now, Ernie was really trained in Freudian analysis. He was trained in Jungian analysis, and he wrote a book um, that's now called Dreams, Consciousness, and Spirit, where he had one client, and this was her therapy, you know, before therapy, during therapy, and after therapy, mm -hmm. and her dreams, and her associations to the dreams. Doesn't that sound like respectful of Freudian thinking? And, and, uh, and, and also, it was just really bringing Freud and Jung together. And um, so he had all this going on in his mind. He was working with a client one day in his office, and the client pointed his finger at Ernie and said, I know what you're doing. You're doing Erickson. And Ernie never heard of Erickson. So uh, he said, you know, who is Erickson? So this client brought the Jay Haley book to him. And Ernie got this book on a Friday and he began reading this book. It was so fascinating to him. He continuously read until now it's Sunday evening. He has continuously read, you know, for um, a close to 72 hours in a row. No food, no sleep, nothing. He was captivated by this. And on Monday morning, his stomach didn't feel good. So he thought, well, I'm going to, I better go see a doctor. I really don't feel well. And the doctor looked at him and said, I don't know what you're doing, but stop it immediately. You're getting an ulcer. And so Ernie thought to himself, I now have a psychosomatic problem. I think I should go to Erickson to get help to heal my, <laughs> my, um, my problem. And that's how it started. So, you know, it started really with um, when you think about it, you know, that his perceptions were telling him that, you know, he needed to do something different. And so, by the way, uh, great story. Exactly. And that we can bridge that with the unconscious because, you know, 
when since we are talking about Ericsson and uh, the work of Dr. Rossi with Ericsson, well, uh, Ericsson actually and uh, yeah. Ericsson and I think Dr. Rossi also, at least in hypnotherapy and exploratory casebook, they saw uh, the unconscious mind and the conscious mind and the relationship between one and another, I think, totally in a totally different way than Freud did. I mean, yeah. at least that's my impression. Yes. So. Yes. Uh, you know, that, that, that they did. And for Ericsson, um, the unconscious mind was the point. That was the point of, mm -hmm. um, of hypnotherapy. And uh, that's not necessarily, as a lot of people practice today, it's not necessarily how they practice. But, but Erickson, um, the unconscious was always another personality in the room. And he wanted to invite the unconscious to come forward. And the reason why he would give um, uh, many different ways to um, enter into an experience is that he wanted to give every opportunity for the unconscious mind to be stimulated and that that uncon stimulated unconscious mind might then bring to consciousness um, more information that was, you know, uh, buried within the person that would aid in their healing and in their understanding. And so it was, um, uh, it was always in the room. 100% of the time in the way that Erickson worked, even when he was really direct, he was speaking to both the conscious and the unconscious minds. Yeah, and he, he, he might seem very direct at times, but there was always this indirect element in it, right? Even in the direct comments, there was mm -hmm. an implication that most of the times would go further than what was just mm -hmm. said. He would use frequently words that had two meanings. He was very, very, very talented with words. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I could say the word steak, for instance, and if you're hungry and if you like meat, you might be conjuring up the flavor of your favorite steak. It could also mean I'm going to put a steak through your heart. You know, I'm going to put it. Um, yeah, I, oh, yeah. I know. I'm familiar with that one. And so, uh, so when when you you know read Erickson's cases, they're so captivating. You don't necessarily stop at these words that have two meanings, but um, that's one of the most wonderful ways to access the um, the unconscious mind. And he would say these words with more than one meaning. There might be three or four or five meanings within the word. Even better. Um, that it was very specific to um, get get you out of your linear thinking and into um, tapping into something else. I'm now starting to think about all that in terms of you know comparing uh, Erickson's work and way of viewing unconsciousness with with Freud's uh, idea. 
and the line that I see that may not be accurate, but you know what I see is that uh, Freud actually was um, like I would say passively approaching unconsciousness, and he would advise to uh, get that content out of the unconscious to the conscious mind by ways of free associations, and. Uh, when, when it comes to Ericsson and when you say about this indirect way of actually addressing things and so on, I, I'm thinking about the process that stands behind that, which is called the uh, indirect associative uh, focusing and indirect associative involvement. And uh, I'm thinking to myself that that's totally opposite direction where you don't actually take out from the unconscious anything. You put into the unconscious a lot of things by actually uh, rising up or, you know, so to speak, um, activating uh, different associations within a client by means of metaphors, puns, jokes, uh, stories, uh, anecdotes, uh, experiences that you can actually com com create, convey in the, in the hypnotic session and, and so on and so forth. So that's like totally opposite way of, I think uh, way of working like you know Ericsson is more like direct and more this direction is like from the outside to the inside mm -hmm. and Freud would be more passive and his direction would be from the in inside to the outside I mean I don't know if that's accurate but just I, I, I think it's a really interesting take on it I've got to kind of you know stay with it for a little bit my initial feeling is that sounds right um, but as you know, I'll always be like 100% honest with you. It's like, no, I, I, I got to think about this. But mm -hmm. I, I, I think this is this is a potential of an amazing insight. And um, that what I've learned over my life is that uh, uh, often opposites work. And um, that it, it, when we think there's only one pathway, that's where we go wrong. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you know, and I mean, and, and of course, um, you know, Freud talked a lot about resistance and this and that. Um, but, you know, with a lot of the ways that Erickson worked, it just wasn't an issue. And so, um, and, and you've helped me to understand that, you know, sometimes you want resistance, like, you know, sometimes you even want to encourage resistance. So there's a time and a place for everything. So having con this continuing open mind with yourself of how you're going to take things in and what you're going to do with it, that um, it's really not very much fun to be right when you know that there could be more than one way to be right and so your right way is just one of them yeah and you know exactly uh, which which way is actually the right way when it you know since the brain is so complex and we still don't know much about it and how it actually works and when when we when you know when if you if you go to current literature on the unconscious mind, for example, we actually still don't know where it actually is in the brain too much. You know, there are some kind of ideas about that, but there's no certainty. I mean, and no, there isn't. And um, I love that when when the brain was first studied, uh, it was there was this thing in it called like white matter, like the gray mm -hmm. matter that that was important. 
you know, that we know about the gray matter. The white matter is like kind of, well, it's extraneous. It's, we don't really need that. We don't know what it is. Um, now the white matter is pretty important. And what interests me most is the space in between. Like what is happening in the space in between where there's no, you know, there's, there's nothing. And um, in my imagination, total imagination, that's where consciousness lives in the space in between. Well, like I say, imagination. Some people, say, some people say that consciousness is actually a, a, a constant error in the calculations in between, like, you know, in the activity in between the neurons, that it's like a kind of byproduct. Because so many different kind of calculations go on within the brain. And so as a result of that, as a result of the errors in between and stuff like that, um, consciousness happens. I believe that, I don't know, but probably Daniel Dennett was one of the proponents of this idea that mm -hmm. consciousness is not something that is actually located somewhere in the brain particularly, but is like the, an epiphenomenon of, uh, of the of the overall activity that happens yeah you know it's like an inference and uh mm -hmm. because it's it's that you can have two people side by side that have the same experience theoretically but they take it in differently you know exactly. uh and, and uh, which is always fascinating to me and in um uh in the uh yoga world it's called maya it's called illusion and it says mm -hmm. that we're all in maya it's all illusion and i think that that's what you're explaining is that as you take it in and make sense of it for yourself we could have the same experiences side by side but my experience might be different so then when we sit down yeah. and talk about our experiences i am fascinated when I'm with somebody that had the same experience that I did, except for they were different. I love them more. That way we can see the richness. We, can, we can see the possibilities. It's like, maybe I didn't have the perceptions that you had. Maybe my mind was elsewhere when you were experiencing whatever it was, because we're online, offline, online, offline, online, offline, yeah. you know, pulsation. So we're not getting the whole thing. We're filling in the blanks. Mm -hmm. and, Plus everything, uh, everything that actually comes in through the senses are, is interpreted on many yeah. levels of the information transduction in the in and, the brain right and some of the definitions of uh, unconsciousness i don't know who said it but it's that that you take it all in it goes someplace but then you're just looking at or experiencing just a little bit of that now i don't know if that's true because you know my goodness like we would have to have a, a brain you know like it was huge to be able to deal with all of that but, you know, it's I think this is our way of saying that there's a lot of ways to look at what is conscious, what is unconscious and uh, the inferences of how you deal with it. In some ways, I kind of have to apologize to our listeners because we're constantly coming to the conclusion of it depends. 
like, you know, that, that we, we can't like say these definitive, okay, you know, here is the protocol that you do to get this result. And, yeah. um, um, but the other thing we will not do is bore you. Is at, that, least we, at least we will try. Right, right. You know, so we can, you know, it's like when you bring up the four stage creative cycle, mm -hmm. it, it, it is a container where you can um, uh, at least, you know, see the process that's going on and how it can change. Do you think we answered all those questions that were asked of us? Well, I, I don't know uh, if there are some more, maybe, uh, you know, someone can ask us. I don't see anything in the comment section now. Let me check if I missed something. Well, because I think that, um, you know, uh, the, certain questions that were asked is really about, you know, the the process, um, where did mm -hmm. uh, conscious and unconscious come from? Um, no. And uh, mm -hmm. we we talked a little bit about uh, how you did anyway, about how, yes, yeah, sometimes you introduce something that that goes into the unconscious. Um, sometimes the unconscious becomes conscious and, uh, but, oh, I remember one other question was, um, can you permanently change the system? Can you like permanently change something in the unconscious? And, yeah. um, and by one, exp by one in, by one, uh, contact with it or by rapid, right. By one contact. And so, um, uh, that's kind of an impossible question to answer so i sort of want to just to acknowledge that it's that uh -huh. how would you know yeah. if, let, if, let, if, if it's going into the unconscious how how would you know well i think i may answer that <laughs> by uh by some indicators like you know you want to you want some change you you have your goal well defined and by achieving the goal. Mm -hmm. So you generally would not know how far did it go to the unconscious mind, but you would know by the results of the intervention. Okay. Yeah, I don't I, know. I, I, that's, that, that, I think that's the only way to actually be able to, at least to, a, some, to some degree, go and see if something works. Well, I, I love the idea that um, the the conscious and unconscious that um, the unconscious can grow, the unconscious can shrink as it becomes conscious, um, and so there's there is this kind of flexibility. I don't think that either stays stagnant, mm -hmm. and um, and I do think on an experiential level, when you have overcome a really difficult problem, a really difficult psychological problem, mm -hmm. and you've really come to terms with it, I do believe that something structural actually changes. And, uh, and it would make sense to me that, um, that the unconscious would be reworked in that way. Mm -hmm. But as you say, it really has to be done, uh, understood in terms of um, uh, other elements, feeling peace, feeling yeah. complete. 
so actually we cannot actually we cannot actually measure how uh, far or or to what degree the change actually happened on the unconscious or conscious level we just we can just measure the change by some by measurements right you know in cbt they do it by scales mm -hmm. um in the mind uh, in in mind body transformation therapy we do it by asking uh, a patient how you know we uh, um if focus on the feeling or whatever we work with and ask general question from one to ten you know what's the intensity of your feeling and then we can see the alterations so so that but but is it possible to actually determine to what degree that was an unconscious or conscious change i think that would be very difficult at least with the measurements or tools that we have today and understanding of those processes I just thought of a way. Okay, hit it. Uh, this is a possibility. So uh -huh. um, uh, Dr. David Cheek was, um, uh, wrote a book with Ernest Rossi called Mind Body Therapy. And he used finger signaling. It's called mm -hmm. the idiodynamic finger signaling. This yeah. is how he reached the unconscious. So you could ask the unconscious a question and a, a finger would signal like, you know, that, that you establish mm -hmm. yes, no, this sort of thing. And uh, that's just with, I'm just making it simple with one finger. So you, I think you could actually go in and ask the unconscious to give you the, that feedback if that structure had been. Yes, yes, that's true. However, however, I would have here one slight kind of comment on it. Um, because I think that it was actually David Cheek that was trying to uh, utilize that uh, in uh, forensic psychology to actually, uh, you know, uh, take, from, from to to actually um, get from people the real information about things, and it was the research that uh, that that people actually can lie in this state and you know do things uh, not so. So do we actually have even if it's an unconscious signal because probably you can influence that and it will be conscious then. But even if it's unconscious, how certain can we be? that your unconscious is actually telling the truth right now i mean that's another question i don't know <laughs> well that's but, that's but isn't that great that's the yeah point. the cool thing is that it is unconscious so what does unconscious means it means outside of our conscious awareness so we right. actually it's something that we don't know cool thing that we can actually influence that but you know measuring it at least with no other equipment or whatever we we possess i I think it's still impossible uh, direct measuring of that it's only you know right that's always like going to be by inference but i was thinking that'd yeah. be kind of fun like you know and mm -hmm. and and if you were to do that with a person for instance that was very interested in this whatever response that they gave would be truth for them in the moment that um you know when it comes to forensic things that um you know one uh it would make sense that one would be protecting themselves that their unconscious would protect them and so that they would therefore potentially lie on an unconscious mm -hmm. level 
Yeah. But um, but when you think about where it's just a, a, a um, an interesting question to ask that doesn't have any any um, other consequences than than interest that that whether that would be you know more accurate or not. But Exactly, but you know, doesn't it have any other consequences in a therapeutic relationship? I mean, sometimes it doesn't, but there are times where people actually try to, uh, you know, pop, uh, get a therapist's attention or wants to be uh, liked or accepted by a therapist. So, you know, there's a lot of expectancy that can be, doesn't have to be, but can or maybe can be. involved and this sort. This, so, I mean, you know, this is all part of the therapeutic process. It's just, and it's it's very valuable and interesting and the, the dynamics of the relationship and contact, incredible and incredibly interesting thing. It's just that, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that probably it inf influences the, um, uh, the factor of uh, reliability of, of those signals to a to a degree unknown that, because if we could yes. you know measure that then we can you know judge based on some measurements but but we still we even that kind of thing the expectancies alter in time and stuff and probably vary depends on the person on the day on you know mood whatever there's so many valuables and oh exactly well you know Jan this is why we need each other is that you can come up with an idea, I come up with an idea, mm -hmm. you know, we sort of like work through of, um, you know, possibilities. And this is the best that there is, that um, um, to be asking more and more questions, to be open to every possibility and to not get stuck by, oh, I found the answer. Exactly. You know, I found one of the answers, I think, you know, that it's so much more fun. Well, I've heard, uh, uh, I think it was my grandma who told me that saying, that, that old saying that says, uh, keep up with or stay in contact with people who are looking for truth, mm -hmm. but get away from those who claim that they found it. <laughs> How do you say that in Polish? Uh, it was, it was, do you want me to say that now in yes, Polish? Yes, yes, yes. I actually forgot. Let me think. <laughs> okay. Now I, I've got like, so, so fear, so, like some kind of anxiety of public speaking. Oh, it was, you know, the reason okay. why I ask is sometimes there's like a different vibration in hearing. Yeah, it. exactly. And I so okay. I, I'm not putting you on the spot. I'm just, um, you know, it's, I, I love music. And so when I hear, um, when I hear another language, I'm listening to music. You can tell me privately.
Are you there? Yes, I think somehow all of a sudden uh, your voice... Um, something uh, happened here. I mean, you know, probably some kind of equipment stuff or something. They said it's it's an internet kind of thing. Let me just check if we are we are still online. Yes, we are. Okay. Yes, so we're, the, there, we're still online. I was here the whole cool. time. It's it just, um, you know, it's just that you got interrupted yeah. a little bit. Okay, so guys, sorry for this uh, mild interruption. <laughs> yeah. Good that we are still on. Um, okay, so I I may say it in Polish, but then after that, you'll tell me how does it sound when you know. Okay. How do you how do you feel Polish language? Um, so it was like. Ready. Ready. Okay. Podążaj za ludźmi, którzy szukają prawdy, ale wystrzegaj się tych, którzy twierdzą, że ją znaleźli. Okay, that's it. How do that's you feel? Beautiful. There's a softness to it. You know that that the um, the way that that I receive it is actually, of course, you biased me, um, but I receive that as a hug from your grandmother. Okay. You know, because it's a really good, good saying. Okay. I like it very, very much. So what would you say if we finish this this part or this meeting with a short summary of, because we know how Freud and Jung saw unconscious mind and we were discussing a bit about um, how Erickson viewed it, but we don't actually said it. So I would say what, I actually have two questions. Okay. One is at the in the end of of this meeting that I think will wrap everything up and summarize everything. Mm -hmm. So, um, for first one would be uh, how actually Erickson viewed the unconscious mind, and the other was my observation that actually if you go into the um, writings and uh, books of Dr. Ernest Rossi, uh, he, he I think we're having another internet interruption of what's going on right now. Well, I don't know if people well, can hear me or not. So sorry, we just live in a technological world. That's what we live in. Erickson was always interested in the whole he talks about Okay, we're back online. Yes, so I was actually doing a little talking as, as you were interrupted. I don't know if mine came through, but Erickson believed in the whole person. And mm -hmm. that whole person was going to have a conscious and an unconscious mind. And so, but but a hundred percent, he was looking at the whole person, and um, so he would define um, consciousness as that which you can bring to mind, and unconsciousness as that which is um, you know underneath, and that mm -hmm. you know that that can sometimes be revealed. 
Um, Ernie believed strongly in the unconscious mind, and he felt that the one of the, the fastest avenues to get to it was in your dreams and in your early mm-hmm. morning thoughts, that when you're bridging the gap between unconscious and conscious, and that when you simply are able to tune in with great sensitivity, which was a saying that he used a lot, that mm-hmm. and you see what happens next and uh, what happens next more often than not is would be uh elements of the unconscious mind speaking did you experience that with him jan yeah i mean uh, an experience of something like that a feeling or a sense it wasn't mm-hmm. something very like you know defined that i could say okay from that moment on i feel like right. unconscious. Yeah. but there were things that were surprising if you know what i mean or unexpected mm-hmm. to a degree absolutely but i think that that really does sum it up and is that that uh and we talked about you know, uh, Buddha consciousness. We talked about mm-hmm. the Upanishads, um, the the most ancient literature that's talking about consciousness. How you know Freud, um, you know, made the term popular. So we're really grateful for that. How Jung stood on you know his teacher's shoulders and said, "I think that it goes goes beyond the individual mm-hmm. and into the collective." And um, and then we've uh, you know it's a hundred years more you know um, and we yeah. continue to discover what is consciousness for ourselves um, and what's consciousness in others and so uh, you know my attitude is you know let's just keep going let's just keep having this conversation let's you know let's see the best of what can come up. Um, you know, in each one of us. Mm-hmm. And that's what we share with the people that we love, these new discoveries. And particularly when you've had an experience that's been really painful and all of a sudden you come to terms with either uh, accepting that or understanding um, or uh, sometimes it's that I'm tired. I think I'm just going to move beyond this. And then when your body and mind will let you do that. And that um, to hug your unconscious, you know, to appreciate your unconscious will make itself conscious when you need it more, more often than not. I, I like this. I like this as saying to, you know, um, Hugging your unconscious will make it more self-conscious. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and the uh, uh, ultimately, it's the union of all of these consciousnesses and these perceptions mm-hmm. that um, bring happiness. Exactly. And just thought that came to my mind now. What if there are more than one of each? I'm certain there are. I'm certain that there are many levels on each one of them. Mm-hmm. That's the discovery on. That's that's really the exciting part. And of course, you know, within the Upanishads, um, you know, they'll list many levels of each consciousness. And uh, we've just begun 
the, this fabulous journey and in working the privilege of working with clients and um, helping them to tap into the, the, their best self, the resources that can carry them through to bring understanding that, um, that, that this subject is really valuable and important and precious and something to be cherished. Mm. Exactly. Okay, so I think we may uh, uh, end up here. What do you think? Do we? I think I think that we've done it, and just wishing everybody a you know a continued numinous life, um, and with 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 so many great experiences. Exactly, and we're probably going to see each other um, in a, in a new year. Uh, probably somewhere in January. So to all of you, have a great holidays, whatever you actually celebrate. There are plenty to choose from, right? Yeah, you know, my family, most of them go with the solstice. <laughs> because okay. we can all agree on that one. Cool. Okay, so everyone have a great holiday. And by the way, if you have any questions, comments or reflections, just leave them under uh, in, in, in the comment sections. And then may, we may uh, be able to develop on those and, you know, go further with the discussion. Mm -hmm. And I think that's all of it. Do all right. Mind? Okay, until so <laughs> exactly until soon, probably January somewhere. January. Okay, super. This was another episode of our Experiencing Consciousness podcast. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Jan. You're the best. Be well, be happy, celebrate life.